Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Along with special guest host, Saltivation Stacy Roberts, today we share a conversation with Brian Hamer about the revisions to the Statement of Information Concerning Practices of Public Law 86272. Brian serves as counsel at the Multi-State Tax Commission, and together we explore these changes, what it both means to businesses and states in the future of Public Law 86272. This is a follow-up discussion we previously had with Helen Hecht regarding the MTC that you can find on the Salt Evasion website. Here is part one of our discussion focusing more on the history of Public Law 86272. Right, well, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. It's nice to have you on and to kind of continue this conversation about the ongoing, I guess, saga of Public Law 86272. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I just love talking about Public Law 86272. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> and listeners, we are joined today by Stacey Roberts. She will oh, no. be filling in for Judy today in this riveting 86272 conversation. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you for having me. <laughs> So, Brian, I guess if you could just start us off with what was adopted and kind of why gut the existing structure? I wouldn't use the word gut, (laughs) but I'm happy to address your question. Most broadly, the Multi-State Tax Commission, of which I am a member of the legal team, updated its statement of information on the statute to address modern business activities. And I think it's helpful to understand what the commission has done to discuss a little background. And I'm sure that many of our viewers are familiar with Public Law 86-272. They probably do what we do at the commission every morning, and that is to pull out a copy of the statute and read it aloud. But it's, it's, it's worth remembering that the statute was passed back in 1959 and that it limits the authority of states to impose income taxes on out-of-state businesses, as we all know. And I, I, I think we all know also that it was a reaction to the Supreme Court's decision in Northwestern Portland Cement. And so we don't necessarily have to get deep into the details about that case or some other actions that the Supreme Court took that very year. But I I think we also understand that Congress reacted quickly to those Supreme Court actions in the wake of um, intense lobbying by the business community, by their their representatives. And and the result was the, the statute. And um, I think it's fair to say that the language of the statute is is a little odd. What it does is to provide immunity to out-of-state businesses that engage in in-state business activities uh, limited solely to the solicitation of orders for tangible personal property. And, And perhaps because the statute was considered and enacted so quickly, I think it's fair to say that there are some flaws in the statute. And uh, let me give you some examples of, of what I have in mind. First, the statute doesn't define a variety of key terms. Kind of essential to the statutory scheme is this notion of solicitation. 
but solicitation is not defined, right? And as a result, not surprisingly, there's been a lot of litigation on that subject, including litigation that went up to the U.S. Supreme Court in the Wisconsin DOR versus Wrigley case. The statute also doesn't define tangible personal property, which maybe wasn't much of an issue back in 1959, but I think we all understand that it's become more of an issue as time has, has gone on. I like to relate that when I was a member of the Illinois Department of Revenue, we were all shocked when the Supreme Court issued a ruling that electricity was tangible personal property. Like, who knew, right? And this, the statute also doesn't define this notion of business activities within the state, which is very relevant to the, to the subject today. In addition to that, the statute didn't assign responsibility to any administrative body to provide guidance to taxpayers or to state tax departments, for that matter, where such an agency could kind of flesh out the meaning of, of these terms or, or generally to provide additional guidance to, to taxpayers. It, it's almost like Congress enacting the Internal Revenue Code and then not providing regulatory authority to the Internal Revenue Service or state legislatures not providing such authority to state departments of revenue. So, so that's been a challenge, and that's also contributed to litigation, I think, over the years. And then finally, this federal preemption of state tax authority, like other federal preemptions, is kind of written in stone, right? So Congress enacted the legislation in 1959, as I pointed out, that was 60 years ago. And actually, at the time, members of Congress talked about the need to examine the whole subject of state taxation more closely and and likely to to come back and revise public law 86272 but they never did it was simply a statute that was written in stone and and meanwhile over the course of these past 60 years the business world has changed a great deal right and the way business is conducted has changed in very significant ways but the statute has never changed so it's in the wake of these issues that back in 1986, the Multi-State Tax Commission stepped up and developed and issued the first iteration of the Statement of Information. And what the Statement of Information does is to provide notice to taxpayers about how states, states that were signatory parties of, of the statement, would interpret the statute going forward. And, and most relevant, what the statement does is to identify those activities that are protected by the statute and those activities that are unprotected by the statute. Now, I know I'm going on for some time, but you know, when it comes to the statement of information, it's hard to shut up. But, but I'll just conclude by saying that the statute was then revised on a few different occasions, uh, but most recently in 2001, which incredibly was 20 years ago, right? And the business world has continued to change since then. So in the fall of, of 2018, 
the uniformity committee of the MTC decided that it was time to take another look at the statute and to consider an update possible revisions. And, and, and that's what's happened. So a, a work group was created. It consisted of representatives from 12 different states. They met on 23 occasions over 13 months. Uh, the meetings were all open to the public. So there was involvement by folks from other state revenue departments and AG offices as well, as well as taxpayer representatives you know from the from the private sector and, and this work group developed a series of proposed revisions which was then uh, subject to a public hearing and eventually just this past august adopted by the commission itself uh, so we now have a revised statement of information in this arcane area but this whole process has been the subject of much attention. It's really kind of a fascinating thing. And I guess I'll maybe ask both of you the question, why is there such interest? But there certainly has been. There have been many panels that have been organized over the course of the past couple of years now discussing the subject of how to apply this statement to, to modern business activities and the approach that the commission has been taken. And there's been many articles written on, on the subject. So it's, it's an interesting question. And I haven't even gotten to the substance yet, but we'll, we'll do that. Uh -huh. I'll keep on talking unless you want to no. say something. Uh -huh. Well, no, I would say go ahead and let's kind of jump into one of kind of some of those big pieces, those big changes or revisions rather into the statement of information. And then, you know, Stacy and I can kind of talk through some of the things that we as practitioners are seeing and how, you know, it's going to impact our clients and what it looks like from just as a person who has to take federal taxable income and put pen to paper and advise our clients on what that means to what potential income tax they could be paying in a jurisdiction? Uh, well, I would say that the, the most consequential revision re relates to um, how the statute applies to business activities conducted via the internet. Um, and uh, of course, there was a great deal of discussion by the members of the work group and debate and, and analysis. And they eventually developed a framework which was inserted into the statement. And I actually have in front of me, I carry it with me wherever I go, the actual revised statement of information. And I think it's actually helpful to, to read. A, a couple of sentences from the statement that that really encapsulate what the the members of the work group decided to do. I think it's important to note that the work group addressed this question about how the statute applies to uh, business activities conducted via the internet by seeing it as a kind of a two-step, two-part subject. Um, and, and the first part, which is not surprising, is to consider whether an activity is or is not solicitation or ancillary to solicitation. 
And uh, the work group didn't spend a lot of time on this subject because of all the litigation that has transpired and, and, and the statement itself, the prior iterations of the statement have addressed this issue. So, so the focus really was when an activity conducted via the internet takes place within the taxing state. And, and, and the conclusion was as follows. As a general rule, when a business interacts with a customer via the business's website or app, the business engages in business activity within the customer's state. However, for purposes of the statement, when a business presents static text or photos on its website, that presentation does not in and of itself constitute a business activity within those states where the business's customers are located. And those simple words have triggered, as I say, lots of conversations. Lots of tax feelings. That's right. <laughs> who knew Who knew us tax people had so many feels? <laughs> right. Um, and, and, and the other thing that the statement does uh, with respect to, to this general subject is, is that it uh, has 11 scenarios. 11 scenarios were added of various forms of internet activities to kind of you know, flesh out and, and apply this general framework to, to situations in order to help readers and taxpayers understand the, the implications of, of the framework that, that I just discussed. And, and we can get into some of those scenarios if, that would be useful. I'll say just one other thing for the moment about the framework, and, and, and that is just to, to talk a bit about how the work group got to it. And, and, and I, I would say the following, that the, the members of the work group were not required to explain their thinking, but there were a couple of themes that definitely came out over the course of, of, of the discussions, kind of considerations that motivated the, the ultimate decision. The first consideration was the, the fact that when a customer connects with a website, the website transmits and inserts into the customer's computer software or code that helps facilitate the interaction. And uh, the members of the work group saw that the, the actions of that code constituted a form of business activity within the taxing state. And it, many of the members of the work group kind of analogize that to a robot. So if an out-of-state business sent a robot into a taxing state to engage in certain non-solicitation activities, I think most people would conclude that that out-of-state business was in fact engaging in activities within that state through the robot. And that code or software performs something of the same role. And then second, there's the Wayfair decision, which had uh, come out in just earlier in, in, in 2018 before the project got going. And, and of course, Wayfair had nothing to do with Public Law 86-272, but what, re what is relevant is that the court made a number of observations about 
how the internet operates and the relationship between sellers of tangible personal property and states where consumers are located. And, and those observations are very relevant to the analysis of Public Law 86-272. And, and in fact, uh, one, one of the key observations of the court was uh, picked up by the members of the work group and inserted into the preamble of the revisions to the statement of information. And, and that language is as follows. An internet seller may be present in the state in a meaningful way without that presence being physical in the traditional sense of the term. And, and so I, I think generally the thinking was that if the seller is present in, in, in the taxing state, then similarly, it is engaged in business activities via the internet in the taxing state. Okay, that's it. I've gone way too long. I'm sure there'll be a lot of editing done here. No, we can always break it into two. It's it's really it's really interesting to hear, you know, that back piece. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.